Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are at the very beginnings of a new series. We just started with last week's episode, taking a look at biblical siblings and especially rivalries and reversals between older and younger siblings. And last week, we took a look at the very first pair of brothers in the Bible, uh, Cain and Abel, and then um Abel's understudy, Seth, um, as we looked at that very, very early family and how the rivalry played itself out, sadly, but also with uh, hope for the human race continuing. Um, So let's move a little bit forward in the story. Sarah, where are we going today? So we are taking a look at another pair of brothers. Um, We are taking a look at Isaac and his older brother, Ishmael. And um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this story... Abraham and Sarah are, um, they've been married for a long, long time. And God has promised them that Abraham's children will be as, like, descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And, you know, lots of good things. And um, Abraham and Sarah are a little bit skeptical because at this point they are past traditional childbearing years. And so it's a little bit like, mm, are you sure that we're talking about us? So they decide to take things into their own hands. And Sarah takes her maid, Hagar, and gives her to her husband, Abraham, to be a, a concubine. And so that Sarah might have children through Hagar. And so that is how um, Abraham gets his first son, Ishmael who is the son of the servant girl, Hagar. So like maybe just before we we delve into what becomes the rivalry between them and the story of Isaac and all that, to to me it seems like it's worth spending a little bit of time um, even before we get to the birth of another son in the family, uh, Isaac. Um, I'll I'll just own for myself, growing up as as part of a, a... church-going family in church circles for all my life. Like, I knew names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But um, there was almost no even recognition that Ishmael exists at all in, in uh, when I was growing up. But the, the biblical story itself doesn't just give up on him, doesn't ignore him or treat him like he doesn't matter to God. His existence and even Hagar's existence the, the, the text recognizes her in a way that even Abraham and Sarah just kind of want to forget and push her out of the story altogether. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it definitely seems like at the, at the first, you know, before another child is born, that Ishmael is um, treated well. and um, But there seems to be a growing rivalry between Hagar and Sarah because um, at, at, at one point, Sarah complains to Abraham look, your servant girl Hagar is looking at me with contempt because she is the mother of your of your heir. And Abraham is kind of like, well, this isn't this isn't my problem. You deal with her as you wish. And so therefore, Sarah then has permission to mistreat Hagar. And so like and, and I think that this rivalry just gets worse as um, Sarah does successfully give birth to Isaac. Um 
because then it becomes like, you know, this is this is the true son of the covenant, and that is just Hagar's son, who Abraham is the father of. Um, but like Ishmael better not try to steal Isaac's birthright as you know, Sarah's son, who is Sarah is the wife of Abraham. Yeah. There's there's even a scene before Isaac is born, um, when all there is in the family system, as dysfunctional as it is, is Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael, where Hagar decides she's gonna run away. Uh, and just sort of get out of that whole system. So she she takes Ishmael with him, and she goes out in the wilderness before God stops her and tells her to go back for a while. Um, and she's Hagar is the first person in the whole of the Bible to name give give a name or a title to God. I mean, up, up to this point, it's just been sort of the narrator going, and God said this, and God did this. And Hagar uh, names God as you are El Roy, the God who sees me. The, the, mm-hmm. There's a lot of times throughout the the Bible where um, and after an event, someone will give a particular title or name to God in, in result of what's just happened. But it seems pretty significant that here in the Bible, it's not the patriarch of the, the people of Israel who gives God this name. It's this person who basically has been treated like she isn't visible by everybody else. So, I mean, Agar, Abraham and, uh, and Sarah basically treat her like an object, like she's just there to fulfill their, you know, family wish plans, uh, and, sh- and that she's property otherwise, that she, she doesn't get a say in this. And that basically it would be easy to erase her from the story, like she doesn't matter because, you know, the, fa- the story is just going to go along with Isaac anyhow. Why does Hagar matter? And even though everybody else seems to treat her like she's invisible, God sees her and she gets it. She sees that. She realized that God is providing for her, uh, even though um, nobody else sees her, and even though uh, she's in this low place. So the, the the seeds of reversal are happening even here. Even though she's the mother of who will be the firstborn in that family, she's the one treated like a nobody, and yet God sees her and provides for her. And not only does God see her, but He promises her that um, Ishmael's descendants, like Abraham's, eventually will be as numerous. Um, you know, not he doesn't say as numerous as the stars like he does to Abraham, but he says too numerous to count. Right, right, so, right. I mean, you know, God sees Hagar and says, "Go back." You know, I, I will take care of you, and not only am I going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of your son, even though eventually your son's father is going to basically reject him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking too. My Hebrew on this is a little rusty, but I think even the name Ishmael means God hears that, like everything to do with. Um, this family is about God and the five senses that God, you know, God is El Roy, the God who sees and the Ishmael's name, I think means God hears that there's a sense of like God being attentive and present in this circumstance, even though Hagar is this marginal person uh, who is treated like she doesn't matter that the, the and even though un- unapologetically, the writers of the, the, the Old Testament are going to be only interested eventually in the story of Israel. And it would have been easy for them to edit out Hagar and say, she doesn't even matter. Let's just forget about her. That no, here this gets held on to. I I guess this is maybe a a moment where it feels to me important to notice. Last week, we talked about the missing wives of like Cain and Abel and Seth and all that. The, The biblical writers, when they feel like it's okay to edit people out, they're okay with that. If they think it's important to say, you know what, you'll get lost. In the weeds, if I give you that detail, I'm not going to tell you about Cain's wife or you know Seth's mm-hmm. wife. Let's just skip that. That 
they clearly feel comfortable editing out characters like that when it doesn't when it suits their purposes to. But Hagar doesn't get edited out, even though it would be so easy to. Um, and even though later on, as Israel remembered its own story, there was certainly the temptation to imagine we're the only people who matter, we're the chosen people. Let's even forget that there was an Ishmael. But they don't. That here is this presence in the text itself reminding them from the beginning, even though later on you're going to call yourselves the chosen people, God reserves the right to love people who aren't the chosen people um, and to be good to the people who are on the margins too. That's their waiting in the text. And all, all, all that it's left for us to do is to stumble across it rather than to just not ignore it, I guess. Well, it would have been easy for them to also say about Abraham and Sarah that like, look at this faithful couple that God promised them a son. And so they waited until God gave them a son. Right. So right. Right. This big blubbering mistake that they made. Right. Of taking her maidservant and saying, well, we don't trust God. We're not sure that God's going to fulfill his promise. So let's make this happen our own way. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things I really love about these ancestral narratives in, especially in Genesis um, is how absolutely they're willing to show the clay feet of all these figures and that they're, they're being used by God mm-hmm. is not dependent on them being perfect peaches. That it's not like, ah, Abraham never makes any mistakes or his faith never wavers, therefore he's worthy. But rather, it's more like, here are a bunch of screw-ups. And even when all they're asked to do is to trust that God will come through for them, they still screw that up. And yet, God doesn't give up on them and when their actions have negative consequences for other people who got swept up in it too, like Hagar, God doesn't give up on Hagar and say, well, you're not, you don't matter because you're not the chosen one, but that God cares for each of those people. So eventually we do get that promised son, though. You know, we've been talking about Ishmael and, and the promises that God's made about him and how he, he cares for Ishmael and Hagar um, throughout all this. But eventually we do get that promised son. Several years later, um, Isaac comes along. Yeah, and I think um, the year leading up to his birth, um, like, it, isn't it like an angel of the Lord visits Abraham and Sarah again? And this is actually when they get their names, Abraham and Sarah, instead of Abram and Sarai. And See, yeah, you get- Sarah is now included in that, that covenant promise where she was not before um, that, you know, God tells them that, no. The, this covenant that I'm making with you is with Sarah's children yeah. that, you know, mm-hmm. stop, stop trying to fulfill this on your own, like trust in my plan. Um, but that Sarah does have a role to play in this. Yeah. And it's, so you get the name change and then it's that visit with the, the three strangers um, who as, as depicted in later Christian iconography all three of them are there, but only one speaks, and it turns out somehow they are all God. <laughs> um, and Christians go, hey, that sounds like the Trinity, but we're not there yet. Um, but, yeah, so there, there's these three visitors, and they promise we'll be we'll be passing through these parts again next year, and your, your wife Sarah will have a son. And Sarah's uh, standing at the edge of the tent, and she breaks out laughing because it sounds like utter nonsense. She's like, I'm 100 years old. I think that ship has sailed. And um, what do you know? The, the the next year she's had a son and that that gets at the the meaning of Isaac's name too right mm-hmm. which yeah his name is laughter and I think that's really important for the next part of the story where Isaac is um, now being weaned and um, his older brother Ishmael is playing with him and um, Sarah happens to look over 
and um, she sees Ishmael laughing, which is Isaacing, like he's Isaacing, <laughs> and it's like kind of this moment where I always read it as she's suddenly realizing that. Ishmael is still there and is now a threat to her son's inheritance. Like it's, it's this like really crucial moment that Isaac has passed out of his babyhood. He has a higher chance of survival. And, but yet there is this constant threat from his older brother who um, I think it says that he's like 13 or something. But it's like very vague because when, once he and his mother get kicked out of camp, his mother like carries him, which you don't typically do with 13 year old boys. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, here's this older child posing a danger to her son and his inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, um, at that point, and it, it, again, it seems interesting to me that by this point in the story, there's this assumed presence of cultural expectation that the older son is the one who ha- who should be re- regarded as the legitimate heir, um, even though we've not had a commandment from God or anything like that saying that's how it's supposed to be done. But at this point, we're far enough into human history and civilization that that's just sort of emerged as the default assumption. The older is the more important one. And Sarah realizes, huh, even though... Ishmael is born to the concubine and I'm, you know, the legitimate legal wife or whatever. Uh, I'm worried about who will get the, the inheritance. I'm worried about who will carry on the family name. Maybe she's theologically astute too, and is worried about who will carry on the covenants and the promises of God. Maybe that's in the back of her list of worries, honestly, but it, it comes to a head and she decides she's got to do something to, to get uh, Ishmael out of the picture. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so quick historical note as to why the oldest usually, you know, would and or should inherit. Um, so typically people follow like in this time period, in this culture, you would follow in your parents' footsteps. So boys would take over their father's business, whatever that happened to be. So it makes sense that you would have your oldest son inherit because he's the one that you have the most time with. He's the one that you have like the, you know, the longest to train up into your, your profession, whatever it is. So that, you know, the one who is inheriting is the one who is the most capable um, so, so even if there's like this good, solid reason why this tradition develops, um, we're going to discover God reserves a right to say, I don't care about your good reasons. I'm overturning your expectations. Right. But like, so, so this is a moment, again, one of those moments of uh, clay feet for the people we call the heroes of the Bible in that Sarah not only decides she doesn't want to have Ishmael in the picture anymore, um, her solution is Abraham, go kick them out. She's Abraham, you, you do it. You have the hard conversation. And Abraham, this is his chance to stick up for his, you know, literal own son and to say no, or at least let's provide for them. Or could we, you know, wait till we're at a town since we're wandering nomads and, you know, I could get them a place of their own. Uh, Abraham, a generous guy that he is, sends off Hagar, the mother of his firstborn son and his firstborn son in the wilderness with, one canteen full of water and whatever else Hagar can carry on her back. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
like again, I know we're going to trace the story of, of Isaac in a little bit um, and why it, it becomes important that he's the one through whom the promise is, uh, is fulfilled and the covenant story continues. But when eventually Abraham does banish Hagar and Ishmael, uh, Hagar, you know, makes the canteen of water last as long as possible. They're out in the middle of nowhere in arid, you know, Palestine, and she runs out of water. She is uh, realizing they're going to die of exposure in the heat and in the sun and puts her son in the shade under a bush and says, I can't bear to watch my own son die. I'm going to turn around and walk the other way. And I, I have to think she's assuming she's going to die first because she's picking not to be in the shade. She's letting her son at least be in the shade. She'll be the one who dies first, she assumes, and, and walks off. And at that point, an angel shows up to her and says, hey, Hagar, don't you worry. God has seen you. Yet again, God's the one who does the seeing. I, I, God hasn't forgotten you. God's been watching over you. And in fact, God will provide for you. The promise is reiterated again that uh, even Ishmael will become a great nation. And now God opens Hagar's eyes to see a spring of water. So there's all this sort of play on eyes being opened. And now she sees a spring of water and now she can refill her canteen and she and Ishmael can live and they'll be okay. The story does continue with, you know, chapter 21, verse 20. God was with the boy, Ishmael, and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness and his mother got a wife from him from the land of Egypt. So Ishmael too also has a future. Yeah, there's I've I've found this line that I I wanted to to share it. It's a quote from um, Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead, where the the narrator uh, who has lost a son earlier in his life and then has a son late in life. uh, The the narrator is a is a preacher. And um, he he says he says this sort of uh, writing uh, in an open letter to his son in the novel. He says the story of Hagar and Ishmael came to mind while I was praying this morning and I found a great assurance in it. The story says it is not only the the story of a father who cares for his life and protects his mother. It says that even if the mother can't find a way to provide for her child or herself, provision will be made. At that level, it is a story of comfort. That's how life goes. We send our children into the wilderness. Some of them on the day they are born, it seems, for all the help we can give them. Some of them seem to be a kind of wilderness unto themselves. But there must be angels, too, and springs of water. Even that wilderness, the very habitation of jackals, is the Lord's. I need to bear this in mind. I I like that idea that, in in some sense, all all of this life is is sending our kids out in the wilderness, whether they are our literal children or just the people we care about. And that there's provision even for Isaac out, for, for Ishmael out in the wilderness, even though the story will continue on through Isaac. Um, that, that, that seems to me that, that once again, it's, it's God saying, I reserve the right to care for the people on the margins, even if the, the main action of the story is going to happen in the spotlight. So another, like, this is not the last we see of Ishmael, though, in the book of Genesis. Um, when Abraham dies in chapter 25, both Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury their father. And it um, immediately after that story, we are told Ishmael's descendants. And I think it's important to know that Ishmael has 12 sons. That, you know, we, and this is of course a very important number. We get that later. Isaac's, Isaac has 12 grandsons with, um, through, who is it, Joseph? No, J- Joseph. Uh, Jacob, yeah. Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, who is 
you know, Isaac's son. Um, but Ishmael has 12 sons. Like, so for, for Isaac, it, he, he needs a couple more generations to get that 12, but Ishmael is able to have his 12 sons himself and not like a grand, like his grandsons. Yeah. 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 And I think even that, that idea of whatever level of reconciliation they have when they bury their father is, is noteworthy too. You know, it, it's tempting when there's a, a break between siblings saying they never saw each other again and one side is the good guys and one side is the bad guys and they should never get back together. But that's not really how this works. It, even, even at the end of the story of Abraham's life, Isaac and Ishmael end up being able to be in the same place together. And later on, a couple generations later in Isaac's family, Jacob and Esau will have to deal with their own reconciliation moment, uh, preview of coming attractions. And also side note, this might not be important in the grand scheme of things, because these are definitely people who have been mostly edited out of the Bible. But after Sarah's death, Abraham does remarry. Yep. And his new wife does give him several sons. And we are told their names, but then they're never mentioned ever again. Yeah, yeah. Someday I want us to have a conversation about the whole story about Abraham buying the cave to bury his wife, Sarah. But that's definitely another conversation for another day. When we do a series on cave-related real estate transactions in the Bible. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so at, at this point... The, the narrative of Genesis is well aware from now on, we're going to be basically following the promise, the covenant through Isaac. So even though there's been mm-hmm. this sort of send off, Ishmael is going to be OK. Now God's going to continue on through Isaac. And this is maybe the, the theme we're really wanting to highlight throughout all these uh, episodes is what a reversal it is. That even though there's reason and pressure for the older son to be the chosen one and the younger ones to be, well, I guess you're just bonus. Uh, that here now the central figure is the, is the second son, the, the younger son, Isaac. And God continues the story through him. Yes. That makes it all the more important when we get to that uh, other really weird, interesting story about Isaac uh, in his maybe teenage years when there is the commandment briefly to offer him up as a sacrifice. And Mm -hmm. then uh, Abraham is inches away from killing that very son of the promise, right? Yeah. So it seems like part of the issue in that story, for, and again, for folks who don't know it, about what, Genesis 22, maybe, God uh, calls to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And of course, at this point, we could all protest, well, he's not your only son. Well, he's the only one who's left in the, in the family, and this is the one through whom the, the promise is going to be continued. Take your son, Isaac, and offer him up as a burnt offering on the mountain where I will show you. Um, and Abraham is about to do it. He leads him up. He uh, gets to the base of the mountain tells the rest of the guys, hey, you guys wait down here. The boy and I are going up. And weirdly, he says, and we will come back down to you. Um, And they're up on the mountain. He binds up his son and uh, lights the fire. And Isaac asks weirdly, hey, dad, I noticed we got the fire. I noticed we got the the wood. I noticed we got the rope. But where is the lamb? And uh, Abraham answers, God will provide. Uh, and moments before he kills his own son, God provides a ram stuck in the in the brambles or something like that to be offered instead. But part of the the I guess tension of that story is that there are no bonus extra sons at this point. This is the child mm-hmm. of the promise, and that Abraham is being asked to endanger that very promise 
in order to do what God says, which is <laughs> yes, yeah. But I, I would imagine that at that point, Abraham has already tried to take God's covenant into his own hands once before with Ishmael. That you know, surely if God is telling him to do this weird thing, God must have a plan. And that God will still fulfill the promise in some way. So, you know, the faith that Abraham has at this point is astounding because I, as a parent, I think I would be questioning this command a lot. Yeah. And it it seems to me like that, that, for whatever other weirdness there is in this story and the fact that it always makes me want to ask, like, why would God do this to Abraham? A part of it seems to be, will, will you trust that I can, that, that, that I can keep the promise I've made to you, even if it looks like there's like, it's impossible. I mean, up to this point at at every turn, when Abraham decides God's promise sounds too good to be true or impossible, Abraham has said, Oh, I can't really trust God. I've got to do things my own way. And so here's one more place for God to be like, can you trust me that even through death, even if it comes to death, I could raise up your boy again. Um, And that it's not that it's not at any point that God needs to be fed with human sacrifice. If that's how we're reading the story, I think we're missing something, but it's more about is at this point, will Abraham finally be willing to trust God um, and not resort to, well, it didn't make sense to me. So I'm not going to do what you said, God. Um, Maybe this is a a point to, to just bridge that uh, after that rather weird episode with his dad, Isaac does grow up. Um, there's a delightful romantic comedy about how he gets his wife, Rebecca. Um, and then he has two sons who will be sort of carry on the, the, uh, the tension, the hostilities and the, the sibling rivalry that we'll take a look at in our next episode, but that Isaac does make it through to adulthood and the, the family line and the, he becomes sort of the next patriarch of the family after Abraham dies. Now he's sort of the head of the family and, um, presumably has inherited whatever Abraham had and uh, now is sort of caring for the, the, the wealth and the flocks and the uh, estate that had been Abraham's and then things sort of get handed on to him. Yeah. So we will continue this conversation next week. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Join us here on crazy faith talk. See y'all. Bye.